I invite you this morning to turn with me to the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew 1. Matthew chapter 1. Our text this morning is the verses 18 through 21. But we're going to read the whole chapter together. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matan, and Matan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were fourteen generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, fourteen generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, fourteen generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. And our reading this morning, our text, our text this morning will be from the verses 18 through 21. 
Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, one of the great challenges of reading the Bible is that you can never read it separately from your own context. That context includes the culture to which you belong. The culture that you're in plays a big role in shaping your understanding of the Bible and the Bible stories. Christmas is actually a good example of that. Many people have sentimental feelings about Christmas. They regard it as a time to, as an opportunity to spend time with family and friends. But they don't necessarily see it in religious terms. How you, how you read the Bible is also shaped by whether or not you believe that, that God directly intervenes in human affairs. Many people believe that he doesn't. They don't believe in God, therefore they do not believe that he can directly intervene in human affairs. Other people might have a vague feeling about a higher spiritual power that has something to do with their lives, but that's as far as they get. If you hold these two beliefs, that Christmas is just a sentimental holiday and that God, if he exists, is not up to much in this world, then a Bible passage like the one that we read together this morning may seem rather quaint. It's a story of how Jesus was conceived and born from a virgin without any kind of biblical background. You don't really see the point of that story. But the Bible does give us a background. The Bible tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Our culture tells us that to be truly successful, you need to be wealthy, popular, and good-looking. But whether you're wealthy, popular, or good-looking makes no difference at all to God. He doesn't measure success by our standards. Human accomplishments mean nothing to him. What matters is that by nature, all of us are separated from him. All of us have sinned. All of us fall short. All of us have failed in the basic calling that every human being has, which is to know God and to glorify him forever. So all of us by nature are separated from God. The gospel is the good news of how God overcomes that separation. He did that through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Son of God, the true Son of God, but he was also born as a human being. Specifically, our reading this morning says that he was born into the line of David. But he was born without any of the sins or the shortcomings or the failures or the imperfections or the mistakes made by other people in that family tree. We need a Savior who is perfect. Jesus is that perfect Savior. He, he, he is true God because anything less than that is not perfect. So to be a savior, he needs to be true God, because anything less than that is not perfect, and he needs to be true man, because if he's not a true human being, how can he save other human beings? So in order for the Christmas story to, to be more than just a, a sentimental fable, in order for it to have any meaning at all, both of these facts need to be historically true. Jesus had to be the Son of God, but he also had to be the descendant of David. 
And today we're going to find out why. Our text tells us how the Son of God became the Son of David. Now Matthew begins his account of the birth of Jesus with a genealogy. These days, the study of family genealogies is quite popular. You can go to a, a website like Ancestry.com, and you find out all sorts of things about your ancestors, and it's not always a good thing. It's not always a good thing. Sometimes you come across things that you would rather not have known. Some things are best left forgotten in the past. Now, Matthew's genealogy is, is interesting because he doesn't do that. He doesn't try to hide anything. He's using this genealogy to make a theological point. There are two points, actually. These two points are intertwined. The first point is that humans are sinful. Human sinfulness, he puts that forward. God originally created human beings good and in his image. But when you read this genealogy, you see many examples of people that have not lived up to that. Consider, for example, already in verse 3, the story of Judah and Tamar. A very sad story of a man who was confronted with his own hypocrisy after the woman that he slept with that he thought was a prostitute turned out to be his own daughter-in-law. Imagine having that in your family tree. Or consider verse 6, which mentions that in passing that David was the father of Solomon, and look at what it says, by the wife of Uriah. Well, what happened to Uriah? He was murdered, and uh, this, this, this woman was not originally David's wife. So there's a reminder here of, of adultery and of murder. Then various kings are listed. Some of them were good, but the general trend was towards increasing wickedness and depravity, and then verse 11 reminds us of the failure of Israel as a whole, the, the nation of Israel, the people that, that were called out of Egypt to be God's son, and, and they failed. It says at the time of the deportation to Babylon, they were taken out of the promised land as punishment for their sins. So this genealogy is not meant to show the best side of Jesus' family tree. It's a, f- a record of failure, of disappointment, of sin. In other words, it's a lot like our genealogies and our life stories. Everybody has some form of sin and failure in their life. And it's generational. No one can get away from it. No one can avoid it. No one can escape it. And and this genealogy reflects that. It doesn't hide any of this. It puts it all out there. And it says this is why God's people need a savior. Now, what is striking is is that the Lord was accomplishing his work in history despite the sinful failures of his people. He didn't wait for them to get their act together before he started to bring about the birth of the Messiah. He, He spent centuries developing this genealogy as he waited patiently to bring the Messiah into the world. This genealogy is also a a record of the faithfulness of God. That was the other point. Remember, the first one was human sinfulness, and the other one is God's faithfulness. Matthew 1 verse 1 already points to that when it says that this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
God promised Abraham that all, all nations would be blessed through him. What does it mean to be blessed? It means to be permanently reconciled with God, to enjoy his presence forever, and everything that comes out of that. God promised Abraham that blessing would come out of his family line. And, and over time, it became clear that this blessing would, would be accomplished through a Messiah. And, and it starts to get more focused when God brings his word to David, and he, he says that, that David will, that, that his throne will be established forever. So all of these prophecies are, are like pencil sketches. If you've ever seen somebody make a sketch of a face, let's say, they, they start with outlines generally, and then they, they are, add more and more detail, and as detail gets added, it comes into focus, and you start to see more and more the person that this is supposed to be. That's what happens with these prophecies over all these centuries. That's what God is doing through this family tree. You get this composite picture of what the Messiah is going to look like. And there were many other places in the Bible as well where God revealed glimpses of of what the coming Messiah would be like. But one thing is crystal clear. For him to be the Messiah, he has to be the descendant of David. He has to be born in this family tree. And, And by the way, in brackets, when, when the Bible says son of, that can also be understood to mean a descendant of, right? So son doesn't necessarily mean um, a son in the sense of an immediate descendant. It can also refer to a grandson or a great-grandson. So the word son is used loosely in these genealogies. And that's why we can say that, that that's why it also says that Jesus was the son of David, the son of Abraham, So this whole genealogy builds up to him. He's the fulfillment of all of these promises. And it's exactly at that point when it's about to be fulfilled that we run into this problem. If you you read verse 16, you see that it says that Jacob, the father, was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. There's no mention here of Joseph being the father of Jesus. And remember, this is, this is a problem because for, for Jesus to be the fulfillment of God's promises, he has to be a descendant of David. Otherwise, he doesn't fulfill even the most basic part of this prophecy. Then the whole Christmas story falls apart. So what our text is doing is it's showing us how Jesus fit into this genealogy anyway, how the Son of God became the Son of David. Joseph himself was a legal descendant of David, but you wouldn't have been able to tell by looking at him. We know from from, um, elsewhere in the Gospels that he was a a carpenter, possibly a stonemason. The word can mean both. So he was a tradie, which means that he would have related well to, to many men in the congregation. He might have descended from the line of David. He might have had had blue blood in his ancestry, but that was centuries ago. The house of David had fallen into disarray. And there's nothing royal about him at that point. He's a carpenter. He's not a wealthy man. He has no influence, power, or authority. But he is engaged to a lady called Mary. Verse 18 says that she was betrothed to him. Not, not a word that we use very often anymore. Um, he was engaged, but it was more than that. It was a lot more formal back then than it is now. The only difference um, 
between being engaged and married was that when you were engaged, the girl still lived at home for a year. After that, you were married, and then you moved in together, and you had marital relations. But, but being, being engaged was so formal that it could not be broken without an official divorce. To us today, being engaged is, is, is a step towards marriage, but you're not married yet. But back then, it was much closer to the actual marriage itself. So you had to get divorced. And, and that's a situation that, that Joseph is confronted with. He, he needs to ba- break off this betrothal, he thinks. We read in verse 18 that when they came together, in other words, before they moved in together, before they slept together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. And in verse 16, that was hinted at already, that, that, Jacob, that Joseph was not the father, the biological father of Jesus, and, and now it spells it out for us. Mary was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Now bear in mind, we were talking about context earlier, and, and the Jewish people were being ruled by the Romans at that time. Greco-Roman mythology was full of crass, horrible stories about gods fornicating with human beings. Generally, it was the male god fornicating with a woman. And, and it was one of the characteristics of their um, heathen mythology, this gross immorality. And half god, half men walking over the earth. So there was a cultural context for, for this sort of thing, and it wasn't a good one. But it's clear what Matthew means is something totally different from that. It's not meant in a crassly, literal kind of a way. It's not meant as some sort of a, a poetic metaphor. He's very sober. He's very factual, if you look at it, and how he records this. And he refers in verse 23 even to, to a, a prophecy from Isaiah, which, which he says is fulfilled in this. this. This prophecy was, by the way, prophesied seven centuries before Jesus was born. And, and Matthew says, look, that, that was the prophecy. Jesus is the fulfillment. So Matthew was treating this as a, as a historical fact. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary outside of the normal way in which babies are conceived. Now, it's important to note here that, that each gospel writer has, has his own emphases. And Matthew was, is really bare bones. He, he focuses especially on the fulfillment of prophecy. But Luke gives us the backstory. We know from the parallel passage in Luke 1 that Mary had been told what would happen. The angel Gabriel comes to her. He explains to her that she will conceive, that she will bear a son. And the first question is, is an obvious one. Well, how is this going to happen since I'm a virgin? And the angel answers her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And at the end, Mary responds with, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. So there's no, no misunderstanding there. She's an intelligent lady of great faith. She's just been told that her life is going to be completely turned upside down. And yet in faith, she accepts what she's being told, knowing that there's going to be drastic consequences for her for being pregnant before she's married. So in light of that discussion, it's interesting to see Joseph's reaction 
in, uh, in our text when he discovers that his bride-to-be is pregnant. Look at verse 19. It says that Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, many commentators understand this to mean that he thought she had committed adultery. It says that he was, he was a just or a righteous man, which means in this context, he, he lived according to the law. Now, the Old Testament law did make provision for, for um, someone who's pregnant before being married. According to Deuteronomy 22, if there was indisputable evidence that a betrothed woman had committed fornication, the penalty was, was death by stoning. Now, it should be pointed out, by the way, this wasn't just applied to women. Don't, don't think that the Bible is sexist. It's not. No double standard here. According to Deuteronomy 22, verse 24, a man who slept with a betrothed woman was stoned as well. But none of that was happening in the time of, of Joseph and Mary. The Jews themselves at that point were ruled by the Romans. The Romans had a very strict rule of law, which was actually um, quite similar to ours in many ways. A lot of our legal principles have been borrowed from, from those old laws. And, and so they didn't just let people put other people to death. But it was still a very serious thing to the Jews to be accused of fornication. And, and so you get, you get Joseph now. He's a righteous man. That means he takes the law of God seriously. He doesn't just say, well, this is something old that doesn't apply to us anymore. He's, he's, he's a righteous man, a man of high moral standards. And it says he didn't want to put her to shame. He didn't want to expose her to public disgrace. But he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Now, stop and think for a moment. Does that make sense if he thought, if he really thought that she'd committed fornication? If he really believed that, if he really takes this law seriously, he'd want to see the law being upheld to the fullest extent possible, wouldn't he? That's what it means to be righteous. It means that you live up to the standard set by the law. And he doesn't do that. Instead, it says, he makes plans to divorce her quietly. In other words, he wants to let her go so that legally she can remarry if she wants to, but in any case, she's not connected to him anymore, and he's not going to make a public issue out of this. Why not? If he's a righteous man, why would he not make a public issue out of this? Because it was a public issue according to the law. Moreover, it says in our text, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, the fact that she was with child would be obvious to anyone who saw her. But, but that it was from the Holy Spirit. It doesn't just add that in brackets, so to speak. It simply states it as a fact. She was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Mary obviously knew this fact. Did Joseph know this fact as well? Mary and Joseph were both devout people with a deep faith. Would it make any sense for two people with a deep faith not to talk about this? Would it make any sense for Mary not to talk to Joseph and tell him what the angel had told her? And here, here's another thing to consider. Look at verse 20. While Joseph is making plans to divorce Mary, an angel appears to him in a dream and says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear 
to take Mary as her wife. Now, the, the standard interpretation of this passage is that, that he must have thought that she had committed fornication. And now the angel tells him the true story. But that assumes that the two of them have not been talking together. It also assumes that Joseph would be very angry with her, or at least very disappointed. But it doesn't use that word. It doesn't say that. It says, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Why would Joseph be afraid if he had thought that Mary had committed fornication with another man? Wouldn't anger be a more logical reaction? But instead, the angel tells him not to fear. And what's even more interesting is that this word fear is often used to refer to holy awe, the kind that you experience when you have an encounter with God. So, so what do we know? We know two things. We know that Joseph was a, a righteous man. That means he knew the word of God. He took it seriously. We know that he was in awe of what happened to Mary. If we put these two thoughts together, we, we do not get the impression that Joseph was angry and disappointed but wanted to go easy on Mary out of respect for their past relationship and, and let her go quietly. That's the, the common explanation, but is that really the right one? It, it is an explanation that many people hold, and, and it's one that you will encounter, but there's a different one that seems more likely. Joseph was a man of faith. Joseph, as a man of faith, was expecting the Messiah to be born, just like every other believing Jew was. He knew that when that would happen, it would be a work of God. And now, contrary to his expectations, he's been drawn into this work of God. Or Mary, at least, has been drawn into this work of God. And Joseph is a believer. He sees that his, his fiancé has been drawn into this work of God. And so Joseph says, well... Because he believed, he wanted to let her go. Not because he was angry with her, but because God had gone down a completely unexpected road with his fiancée. God had a plan for, for this girl that was totally different from anything Joseph could have imagined. And he thought there was no room for him in this plan. So he slowly felt himself being led to the most difficult decision that anyone can make in a relationship he began to make plans to break off the engagement, and he wanted to do it quietly so as not to tarnish her reputation. He would let her go, and that would be the end of it. And it's exactly at that point that God sends an angel to interrupt Joseph's thought process with a dream. And he tells him, there's a role for you in this after all, a very important role. Joseph is told to give the child that will be born the name Jesus. In the original language, there's a certain meaning in the way that this is phrased. By giving him the name Jesus, Joseph will officially be acknowledging him as his son. That's how the Son of God can legally be born into the line of David and be counted as a descendant of David. Now, this is more than adoption. This is more than adoption because in an adoption, a child is born into one family but then absorbed into another. This is different. Jesus will actually be born into Joseph and 
Mary's family. He will actually be born into Joseph and Mary's family. His mother was Joseph's wife. He will legitimately be Joseph's son. He will legally be David's descendant. Ultimately, however, the story is not primarily about Joseph and Mary and their relationship, although this is certainly interesting. But this is about God. This is about how God keeps his promises. This is about how the Son of God became the Son of David. Because the child that was born on Christmas Day was both human and divine. But what does it mean for us today? Well, our text spells it out for us. You shall call his name Jesus. What does Jesus mean? Jesus means Yahweh saves. Joseph is told in verse 21, he has to name this baby Jesus because he will save his people from from their sins. And so here we see the true significance of Jesus' birth. He had to be born as a human because the same human nature which has sinned should pay for sin. But a mere human being, an ordinary baby born into this genealogy, and to this family tree, is never going to break with his own sin, let alone someone else's. The genealogy is proof enough. The problem of sin is, is, is this all-encompassing generational thing that is far too big for us to deal with. No ordinary person can cross the chasm that separates us from God. And the Old Testament already recognized that. In Psalm 130, for example, the believers would have sung, With the Lord there is steadfast love. With him is plentiful redemption. He will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Israel, the nation of Israel, God's people. All these iniquities, they needed redemption. And they said, this redemption is with the Lord. Sinful human beings cannot come before a holy God on their own. And that is why the holy God came to us. The name Emmanuel in verse 23 describes what Jesus did. That means God with us. God with us in the most personal way possible. There is no more personal way to join yourself to a group of people than to be born into their family tree. There's no more personal way of joining himself to the human race than by being born as one of us. And then Joseph woke up. And he did as he was told. He believed the word of the Lord that came to him, and he acted on it in faith. So Jesus was born. That's what Christmas is about. That's why we're here today. And today we understand that in his birth, he fulfilled the promise of God with us. The Son of God became the Son of David. He lived a perfect life. He died a sacrificial death, and through that he paid for the sins of his people. And his people are not only the Jews, his people were not just the people in this genealogy. His people. It's possible for anyone to be part of the people of God. Believe that he is who he says he is. Receive the forgiveness that he extends to you in faith. In Matthew 28, verse 18, he said, Jesus promised to his disciples he would be with them always to the very end of the age. That's his promise. That's his promise to us as well. So respond to him in faith. Believe the gospel as it comes to you this Christmas. And then you will have Christ himself. God with us. Amen.